Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. It's hard not to think in this day and age of climate change and a raging pandemic with its multitudinous variants that resistance to our daily catastrophes caused by neoliberalism is futile. As today's guest writes, we get into debt in order to gain qualifications only to discover that employment is increasingly sparse, casualized, and precarious. We wash out our plastic jam pots for recycling as fossil fuel companies destroy our seas and corporations, raid rainforests of unprecedented, at unprecedented rates, and as a deadly virus brings the world to a standstill, we find that global efforts at utility maximization have not rewarded the majority of the world's population with greater social and financial security. In fact, many of us maximize utility to ends that are useless to the greater well-being of society, often just to secure some semblance of individual survival. As the late, great David Graeber pointed out here on This Is Hell, that work that is useless to the greater well-being of society includes what David called bullshit jobs, which our guest today argues to all intents and purposes are socially and financially secure, yet the worker still feels an emptiness in what they do. Neoliberalism has transformed all of us into commodities where we brand and sell ourselves to the highest bidder. At least we hope it's the highest bidder. Often turns out we just sell ourselves for nothing. It has changed our everyday lives and what it means to be human in the 21st century. It has made it so our only forms of social justice are through marketization and consumer choice. Acts like boycotting and consumer choice, which do nothing but reinforce ne neoliberalism and the prioritization of profits over people and money over humanity. The goal of neoliberalism was, is, and always will be protecting the global economic system by erasing and co-opting all forms of collective activism. As our guest will point out, far more than the ever-evolving neoliberalism, whose death is always exaggerated in times of crisis, crises caused by and forever reinforcing neoliberalism, a focus instead on what our guest today calls futilitarianism, may be our only way out of this mess. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Neil Vallely, author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. Neil is a research and economic and social researcher. Sorry, Neil is a researcher at Economic and Social Research Aotearoa and a research associate at the Center for Global Migrations, University of Otago, New Zealand. You can follow Neil on Twitter at Neil Vallely. That's Neil, N-E-I-L, 
V-A-L-L-E-L-L-Y. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing usually is Jess Lipka. We'll have some news about Jess in a few minutes. But instead, it is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? How was your holiday? Anything new about you? Hold on a second. You can get paid for feeling useless and not producing anything for the society? Yep. I've been doing it for free for 39 years. I'm uh, doing great. I went to Plainfield for Thanksgiving and uh, accurately named. I was going to say. It's pretty plain and there's a field. Good, good job, Plainfield. Uh, that sounds a lot like Mount Pleasant, Michigan, too. Very plain, gigantic field. They got a mount? Uh, no. And there's nothing pleasant, and I'll tell you why. My girlfriend and I were supposed to be hosting Thanksgiving this year. We had already cleaned the house, bought a turkey, which was already thawing. That's when we found out only three days prior to the holiday that we would not be hosting. Instead, we would be guests at Thanksgiving dinner 275 miles away and that we would be bringing the turkey along for the ride. There was a misunderstanding. They thought they could bring their new puppy to our place back here in Chicago. However, as we have two cats who are not at all that fond of each other and hate nearly every other living being in the world, and oftentimes that includes us, and we feed and house these cats, there was no way we could host the puppy along with two adults and their two children who are both under seven years old. So we ended up celebrating in, the aforesaid, aforementioned, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, the home of Central Michigan University and the home of the school where the staff cut an African-American elementary school girl's hair without any permission from anyone which you can hear all about on last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Despite all that, it was great to be with family, even if we were in the state that is currently the hottest hotspot for COVID-19 infections. The last time we visited in late August, Michigan had around 100 cases a day. Now it's over 8,000 a day, and the county we visited was one of the very worst in the entire state when it comes to infection rate. The only public place I entered over the three days we were there was a gas station, and nobody, not the workers or customers, nobody was wearing a mask. Nobody was social distancing. There was no protective plastic spacer between me and the employee. To make matters worse, across the street from where we celebrated, Thanksgiving is the former site of the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School, which includes a cemetery for children who died there just down the road. Meanwhile, only a couple doors down is one of those fake women's health care clinics that do not give women a choice. Rather, they do everything they can to convince a pregnant woman to not have an abortion. On top of all of that, we were celebrating in the home of my brother who passed away in February, which is now the home of his daughter, my niece, and her family. That's when I saw an ad on Thanksgiving for a new first-person shooter video game called The New World, featuring conquistadors. And my national day of mourning was complete. But more importantly than the deep sorrow for the dead I felt throughout the weekend. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What's the best thing you ever found lying on the street? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens 
of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks this week goes out to Chelsea in Covington, Kentucky, who picked up our enameled stainless steel camping coffee mug. Thanks to Kimberly in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, who got a This Is Hell t-shirt, which comes in both men's and women's sizes. And thanks to Chris in Tokyo, who also got a This Is Hell t-shirt. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question following our conversation with Neil on futilitarianism. Again, the question from Al is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you found flying, <laughs> lying on the street? Or flying on the street would even be better. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a carvery or restaurant that serves a buffet, including roast meat. Have you ever heard the term carvery? No, I haven't. I like it. The Coventry Telegraph ran a story last week by writer Rachel Harris headlined, Best cure for hangover is a roast dinner carvery, says nutritionist. Harris quotes nutritional expert Susie Sawyer saying the main after effects of a night out are primarily caused by dips in blood sugar, dehydration and digestive disturbances. I feel you on that one, Susie. <laughs> Whilst the brain naturally looks for reward foods, grabbing sugar, fat and calorie laden foods is certainly not the answer. A high protein carvery takeaway, British for takeout, is a much better option than pizza, which is generally high in fat, salt and spicy meats, the combination of which are going to further antagonize an unhappy tummy. Tummy? A nutritional expert. <laughs> Cheese is highly acidic, which is also certainly not going to help either. A carvery is loaded with blood sugar balancing protein in the meat with fiber from the vegetables, both essential for calming dizziness, brain fog, low mood, and anxiety. Really? Plus those vegetables provide vitamin C, which helps the body recover from the after effect of toxins as it speeds up liver metabolism. Root veggies, including potatoes, carrots, and parsnips are in season now for a reason. Well nature. Uh, they're packed with antioxidants, helping to reduce the internal inflammation that's making these post-partying symptoms so much worse. So that makes this week's Hangover Cure a carvery or a buffet that includes roast meat. It does not sound like a nutritionist to me. I'm very skeptical of the whole situation. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model, that puts you before profits. Subscribe to our bonus weekly podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. on Fridays and is podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell shortly after. On our most recent Patreon podcast, which we streamed and podcast on Thanksgiving Eve, I shared my misgivings about Thanksgiving and how for me, the indigenous national day of mourning seemed far more appropriate to be honoring than whatever myth and fairy tale we tell children. And far too many grown-ass adults still believe, I mean, come on, believing in Santa Claus is seen as childish, but believing the Wampanoag happily taught pilgrims how to survive, and then they went along their merry way, never to be seen or heard from again, is ridiculous, especially every year when the surviving Wampanoag still in the region remind us annually that the whole story is completely made up. But it's even worse than that. The Thanksgiving myth is as rooted in reality as the Easter Bunny. And did anyone ever believe in the Easter Bunny? More than anything, the Easter Bunny was 
an exercise in the ludicrous nature of our holiday stories and seems so obvious, at least to me, I started questioning my faith in Santa. What's the lies attached to holidays? Why not honor something based in reality, like the destruction of, I don't know, native lands, cultures, people? We also shared a classic interview that is currently unavailable online anywhere else other than on Patreon, a November 21st, 2009 interview from almost exactly nine years ago with investigative journalist Prathap Chatterjee, who was the senior editor at Corp Watch, a corporate accountability organization where Prathap is currently executive director. His book, Halliburton's Army, How a Well-Connected Texas Oil Company Revolutionized the Way America Makes War, is an investigation into the pri- privatization of the U.S. military and how that has affected U.S. war making, which is now more than ever about prioritizing profits for the military-industrial complex. Uh, that book had been published earlier in the same year. Prothop was on to talk about his just-posted Tom Dispatch article, Paying Off the Warlords, Anatomy of an Afghan Culture of Corruption. That conversation is really worth a listen, especially in light of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's a reminder that whatever intentions the U.S. had in bringing democracy to Afghanistan, they were quickly sl- swept away by supporting already corrupt warlords instead of backing the people who had been risking everything for decades in their fight for social justice and democratization in Afghanistan, but why support those people when you can support corrupt warlords who have power? But you can only hear all that right now by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We also have a scheduling note this week, as we did not do a show yesterday, Monday, as we usually do. We will be doing a show today and another show tomorrow, Wednesday, as well as on Thursday. The Patreon podcast will be back in its normal Friday morning slot. The next two weeks, we are back to our regular Monday through Wednesday schedule with Patreon again on Fridays. Then we'll be off for the last two weeks of the year, except there will be new Patreon podcasts. Also, there's talk of doing something special here at thisishell.com throughout both of the last two weeks, and we'll be telling you about that later on today's show. So just because we are not doing live shows does not mean... We're not posting new content here at thisishell.com, so stay tuned and stay tuned in during the holidays. Just do that. Coming up, our age of futilitarianism. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? We'll also tell you about an opportunity where you, too, can become a crew member here on This Is Hell. We're getting some responses on that. And we got something mysterious in the actual mail that we'll be telling you about following our conversation with Neil. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because... This is how neoliberalism has changed who we are and how we live our daily lives. But focusing on neoliberalism can obfuscate the worst aspects of what has become futilitarianism. Here to help us have a better standing understanding of both, Neil Vallely is author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. Welcome to This is Hell, Neil. Hi, Chuck. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on the show. Neil is a researcher at Economic and Social Research Aotearoa and a research associate at the Center for Global Migrations, University of Otago in New Zealand. Thanks to Tom G., who suggested we have Neil on the show as a guest. Thank you, Tom. 
So you write that utilitarian philosophers told us that maximizing utility was the magical ingredient to happiness. But you mentioned that utility is not something that naturally exists. It is not a neutral or objective concept, adding how the work of Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, could only find one credible measure for utility money. You then quote Bentham writing, the thermometer is the instrument for measuring the heart of the, we- the uh, heat of the weather, the barometer, the instrument for measuring the pressure of the air. Money is the instrument for measuring the quantity of pain and pleasure. And you add that under such logic, the most moral society is the one in which individuals pursue the accumulation of money under the ethical dictate that not only will this lead to individual happiness, but also greater collective well-being. The ethical thing to do under capitalism is to do whatever one can to accumulate wealth. Under capitalism, does it matter how ethically you pursue that wealth accumulation? Does unethical wealth accumulation undermine the utility of wealth accumulation under capitalism? Uh, That's a very good question, a good way of phrasing that. Um, I think, yes, it does. And... um, I think this is one of the real problems for a utilitarian ethics. I say problems from our point of view, maybe not so much a problem for the utilitarians. Um, but I guess my argument in the book is that utilitarianism has given capitalism an ethical uh, framework to justify the, the accumulation of wealth on an individual level. Because for utilitarian philosophers, um, we maximize utility initially on an individual level, and then this is aggregated um, on some shape or form to create what they call the the greatest happiness principle, which is um, uh, the the most moral course of action is the one that generates the most happiness for the greatest number of people. But the problem with that within a capitalist system is that people will maximize their own individual utility as if that represents the the well-being of the collective. Um, And so what I think therefore happens is that we associate individual wealth accumulation with social happiness, with social and collective happiness or well-being. and therefore, we can we, capitalism can basically tell us to to accumulate wealth on the individual level, and in doing so, we are ethical subjects. We are ethical individuals, um, and this is essentially. Um, so, my argument basically is that utilitarianism has given capitalism this this kind of ethical um, alibi um, for for these the, the kind of inequalities that that dominate capitalism, particularly as we come into to the neoliberal era. So how difficult is it to overcome that sense that capitalism is, in fact, ethical? In, in, in difficult in, in the sense that, I mean, my argument would be is capitalism isn't ethical. Um, but it, it's extremely difficult in the sense that um, this, this kind of ethical impetus um, is, I, I suggest, right at the kind of heart of, of modern capitalism. And because, for instance, um, utilitarianism really starts to influence economic science in the 19th century. Um, so some of the, the kind of major uh, classical, neoclassical economists, um, someone like David Ricardo, for instance, in, in England, um, uh, it, it, he was deeply influenced by the thoughts of Jeremy Bentham, who was the, the 
um, instigator of, of what we now understand as utilitarianism. Um, and they both believed fundamentally that, 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 man, that, that humans were selfish um, and that ultimately it was useless to fight that for selfishness. Um, but for me, there's two, two fundamental problems with utilitarianism. Um, for us, and in a sense, uh, for us in the way that we live on a daily basis, is one that is how do we measure utility? So, as you pointed out in your introduction, um, uh, Bentham came up with the idea that essentially money was the best judge of utility. He did for a little while um, toy with the idea of measuring pulse rate, um, but realized that this was so. Kind of difficult to associate with some idea of happiness. So he therefore turned to money. Um, and it's easy to see under the condition of capitalism how, how uh, uh, the idea that money is, is the most useful or the judge of utility can, can um, uh, proliferate under, under a capitalist system. But the second problem for utilitarianism um, and this even relates to some of the stuff you were saying about Thanksgiving. But the second problem is, is that who gets to judge what is and what is not useful, what is and what is not pleasurable, or uh, what is and what is not happiness. And this is because utility is therefore not a kind of neutral or objective concept. Um, Bentham and utilitarian philosophers tend to treat it as if it is, as if utility naturally exists in the world, and all we have to do is somehow find it and, and bring it to the surface. But reality is that utility is something that is deeply enmeshed in, in the power structures of society. Um, in Bentham's era, this meant that utility was deeply uh, deeply embedded in, in the colonial project. Um, you know, I'm speaking to you from New Zealand. I'm an Irish person, um, and it's clear to see within kind of uh, particularly settler colonial societies, how um, how the colonial um, leaders of that period were deeply influenced by utilitarian philosophy, particularly in, say, in New Zealand, where I am, um, uh, Ever Gibbon Wakefield, who was the, the leader of the New Zealand company, was a kind of Benthamite utilitarian. Um, and he, he uh, often... Uh, Acknowledge Bentham as his as his kind of um, intellectual kind of uh, inspiration. Um, so it's clear that that who who gets to judge what utility is 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 deeply enmeshed in these power structures, and particularly it's the capitalist class that get to decide what is and what is not useful. Um, so basically, I contend that utilitarianism is provide capitalism with an ethical theory that justifies the pursuit of money on an individual level, but links this individual pursuit really kind of tenuously to the welfare of all. Um, and that, that's why I think we need to somehow wrestle utility away from the, from the, the grasp of cap society to show that actually utility is something that we can create collectively together. That doesn't actually, utility doesn't need to exist within a capsule society. 
And you point out that utilitarianism has flipped into futilitarianism. Mm. We get into debt in order to gain qualifications, as I was reading earlier, only to discover that employment is increasingly sparse, casualized, and precarious. We wash out our plastic jam pots for recycling as fossil fuel companies destroy our seas and corporations raid rainforests at unprecedented rates. And as a deadly virus brings the world to a standstill, we find that global efforts at utility maximization have not rewarded the majority of the world's population with greater social and financial security. In fact, many of us maximize utility ends that are useless to the greater well-being of society, often just to secure some semblance of individual survival. I describe this entrapment as the futilitarian condition. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of system continue? How is it such a system sustainable? What, what keeps it from failing? Why does such an, a pointless mm-hmm. system not collapse out of sheer uselessness, if not its undermining of collective well-being? Yeah, it's a really um, good point. Um, so I guess I, I I should probably outline exactly what I mean by futilitarianism, because um, it it names what what I'm attempting to do with that term is is operating in a similar way to how we might think of the term precarity. Um, although, as I argue in the book, the concept of futility I think encompasses much more um, uh, experiences than than precarity. But but futilitarianism it, it names a form of of entrapment within contemporary capitalism within neoliberal capitalism, and so it's a sense that no matter how hard we we make ourselves useful, how how hard we try to maximize our own utility, our collective economic and social conditions seem to get worse and worse. Um, and yet the same system demands that we continue to maximize our utility on a daily basis, just so we can survive on an individual basis. And I think this is precisely how it's extremely difficult to get out of the situation, is that many of us realize that, that, you know, as you said, kind of washing our jam pots um, as kind of reinforced or or destroyed, or, um, you know, getting into debt to get get university education only to find no jobs. all of us realize that there's a fundamental problem there, but still we have kind of no other option than to even try to maximize our own utility because that's the only, on some level, occasionally some individual might benefit. Um, but they're, they're, the, this idea that it's fundamental util, utilitarianism, which is the greatest happiness principle, that um, the greatest happiness of the greatest number is impossible under contemporary capitalism. Um, precisely because as we continue to maximize our utility on an individual level, the kind of social and collective structures that enable that utility maximization to, to be, um, to, to lead to some sort of majoritarian well-being are completely dismantled by neoliberalism. So for me, futilitarianism is an attempt to lay the theoretical foundations to escape from this situation. Um, so first of all, uh, utilitarianism shows that the, the um, you know, the concept of utility maximization is deeply embedded in the history of capitalism, um, and to all intents and purposes, has always been a, a sham um, that has maintained the dominant power structure of capitalism. Um, but I think more importantly, utilitarianism attempt to show that the feelings of utility that come out of this situation. So the sense that we are trapped in a cycle of, of utility maximization that only leads to greater unhappiness for, for the, the majority of people 
this is not a defect of our individual characters. And this is what neoliberalism, neoliberalism wants us to believe. Um, with its emphasis particularly on um, concepts of personal responsibility, the idea that that we must take care of ourselves, self-care, self-help, and there, but, uh, rather than directing that kind of anxiety, that anger towards the system itself, we direct it towards ourselves and try to improve ourselves to fit within that system. But rather, rather than that being a defect of our characters, um, it is an intended effect of contemporary capitalism. In fact, the experience of futility is the most logical response to the conditions in which we live. And so what I'm trying to say is that is instead of directing this experience inwards at ourselves, so we end up buying into these narratives of self-help and self-optimization, um, futilitarianism directs us feeling out into the world. So arguing that futility is, is an experience we all share in one way or another. Um, and it can, and, and because we share this experience, it can be the basis of, of a, a, what I call a book of becoming common, but essentially of a, of a new kind of collective emancipatory politics that, that can lay the ground um, to confront the kind of inequalities of, of contemporary neoliberal capitalism. You write that while my futility might differ to yours, mm -hmm. its origin is the same, which gives us a common enemy. Precarity is another name often given to these experiences. And while this term has been extremely productive theoretically and practically in organizing a myriad of individual experiences, I contend that futility can push us farther or further. Sorry. How does futility better describe the moment we are in where we find ourselves more than precarity does? Under neoliberalism, are our lives made more vulnerable or are they made more pointless? <laughs> um, I think probably both um, under, under neoliberalism. Um, and I think the something that the term precarity is obviously being um, an extremely helpful and beneficial way of describing um, a myriad of experiences that emerge, particularly under neoliberalism. So with neoliberalism, the, the, the dismantling of, of the um, uh, the social state, essentially, particularly post-war social democracy, um, uh, which which has kind of uh, precipitated this mass kind of um, inequality um, that's merged um, in, in the decades, really, from the early 1980s. Um, and you see that, you, you see the logic um, that, that pervades futilitarianism in some of the speeches, particularly Reagan when he came to power in the US, for instance, um, he makes a point, I think it was his, his first inaugural address, and he said, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? So we see initially there that we see the kind of retreat of the social state even in, in that sentiment. And so under these conditions, um, precarity spreads um, and it's clear that that in the 21st century, there are many, many people experiencing what we would understand as precarious situations, whether that's in their employment, they might be on zero-hour contracts or um, any kind of um, uh, casualization of labor where all the responsibility is on the worker themselves. Um, it can be, I see it a lot myself when I'm teaching students. Um, students kind of feel a sense of precarity in that they're in a lot of debt and can't necessarily see a future in which they'll be able to pay off that debt. But my point with futility is that 
where precarity has been extremely useful in describing some of these situations, many of us would not, um, many, many people in the world would not um, see themselves as precarious. So many people do have secure jobs. Many people do have assets, um, have a home, have kind of security in the world. And yet this doesn't necessarily mean that they don't experience utility on a daily basis. Um, one obvious example, which you pointed out at the start, is, is you know, David Graeber's um, bullshit job thesis. So there's the rise of this whole industry of jobs that, that provide no kind of social utility, and they just merely exist as a kind of functionary position. That's one way that futility can spread. Um, but I think the thesis I come to in the book is much broader than um, just work. It, it can be the the sense that that we you know that your climate change is a good example or, or the climate crisis is a good example the idea that we 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 might have this genuine ethical um, energy to try and combat climate change or, or climate crisis um, and yet the tools that we have in our toolbox are extremely point are, are useless in combating that because we've all been kind of individualized to a certain extent that we we have been told that we have to take personal responsibility for these huge structural problems and when we find that we are trying to you know as you said wash out our jam pots or or do these really minute kind of micro political actions all the while as capitalism kind of destroys the planet we find how could that not produce a kind of sense of futility. And we don't necessarily have to be precarious in order to experience, experience that futility. So my argument is basically that we can build on this idea of precarity. Precarity has been extremely useful at galvanizing and collectivizing um, a, a shared experience of, of contemporary capitalism. And I feel like futility, because it, it encompasses more experiences than precarity, I think can do the similar can do a similar thing. Um, to precarity, but on a on an even larger level. So, how do we understand capitalism or the current state of neoliberalism differently, when futility, mm. pointlessness, uselessness, even ongoing acts that are destructive to our own collective well-being, are understood as intrinsic, even essential to capitalism? How does that change our view of capitalism? That's a very good question. And I think so. I think the first thing is is to, and I guess this is the point of the book, is is to try and raise raise awareness of this kind of aspect of contemporary capitalism, the idea that um, futility. I mean, utility has had um, um, such a long history within capitalism, within even economic science, um, with the idea of kind of how how central utility is to capitalism. Marx, you know focuses on use values, economic scientists have focused on, on different forms of utility to understand um, how capitalism operates. But futility ha has had little kind of consideration within how capital capitalism operates. Um, so what this book is trying to do is really on, on a kind of fundamental level, it's most basic level is to try and raise aware awareness of how futility is actually quite central to capitalism that capitalism um particularly with its neoliberal mutation spreads futility in a way that that um that traps us with further within capitalism 
So the sense that as as you kind of pointed out earlier, we we kind of have no other option than to to engage in these endeavors that that might that might give us some sort of individual survival, but but we all kind of know on some level will not lead to the kind of greatest happiness of the greatest number of people. Um so within neoliberal capitalism and particularly neoliberalism as it exists now, um, and I think there's a, a really important um, mutation of even neoliberalism itself after the 2008 financial crisis, because um, we see neoliberalism uh, take a kind of punitive term in, in that period, in the decade after that. Um, I always like the, the French kind of Marxist philosophers, Christian Laval and Pierre Dardot, describe the post-2008 neoliberalism as, as a war against the population. And we see that come out in um, in uh, uh, the, the austerity politics post two thousand eight, um, the kind of dismantling of any kind of social social um, uh, welfare social um, safety nets. Um, even Obama's inaugural address right after the kind of global financial crisis um, is really, and I, I take this apart in the book, is a really um, enlightening. Um, speech, I think, because he he demands responsibility from U.S. citizens without any guarantee of, of support from the government. Um, so you start to see there that um, what I call that in the book the futilitarian spirit of capitalism. Essentially, this idea that we have to just dedicate ourselves to to propping up the capitalist system, but we're not going to get anything in return. Um, so I guess. Um, I've drifted quite far away from your original question, but I guess what I what I'm doing in the book is is really showing how futility and the experience of futility has become one of the most dominant experiences of contemporary capitalism, and for many of us, it, it feels like a form of entrapment. It feels like something that is impossible to escape. And for many of us, we haven't even acknowledged it yet. And this is part of what I'm trying to do in the book. What I'm trying to do in the book is really give a name to an experience that I think is is very widespread. And it differs, obviously, for each individual. And it differs across social and, and social groups. Um, so it's no doubt that some people experience greater futility than others. But having said that, I do think futility is on some level a real a shared experience that can transcend social so, social um, boundaries and social and cultural boundaries. And in doing so, it can actually act as a way of uniting us across those boundaries in a way that can make us actually challenge contemporary capitalism in an effective way. On the speech that you were just discussing and you analyze in your book by Obama, was that the announcement of the end of the social contract? Because one thing I never really understood is when the social contract ends, why wasn't there an uprising? Why wasn't there, yeah. you know, why aren't we getting something for what we invest in this country? Why is why is this kind of utilitarianism? Why is this neoliberalism yeah. sustainable if there is no social contract? I've never really made yeah. sense of that. Yeah, that's a really good, really, really good point, Chuck. And I, I think... I think um, futilitarianism was kind of nascent within capitalism. Um, uh, it's always been there on some level, and even in the kind of early decades of neoliberalism, it, it started to emerge more more um, thoroughly. 
But I think 2000, I think that's a really, really good way of describing <clears throat> the post 2008 reaction, <clears throat> particularly from Obama, um, but across the kind of global north, is the kind of end, the end of the social contract. And you're right, the, the fact that this didn't generate a kind of uprising, didn't generate uh, uh, as much anger as it could have done, is, is an example of how deeply entrapped we are in, in the idea of utilitarianism. Um, that we are, we are all so busy just trying to survive that the idea of actually doing something about it is so far beyond us. And this, I think, is central to how neoliberalism maintains its, its hold over us. Is that it, the more the more its the more its survival is at risk, and this was clear after two thousand eight, when the very system, when the system of neoliberal capitalism completely imploded, it was clear that neoliberalism was no longer a justifiable way of of um, uh, of economic governance, and yet it still continues, and and I think the only way that neoliberalism can survive in that in that um, scenario is that if it, if it makes us feel even more useless, is it, if it makes us, if it punishes us even more, if it keeps us deeply um, entrapped, then, then we can't, we do not have the energy on a basic level to confront it. We just simply have to try and survive within it. Um, but I think, yeah, that like that, I think that speech from Pama is so, um, is so fundamental to understanding where we are today. And I think I've, I haven't, I don't describe it in the way that you do, but I think that's such a great way of describing it is that it is the end of the social contract. It's the end of the idea that we get something in return from government. And basically Obama just says to US citizens, it's your, you, you have to take responsibility for yourselves and you're not gonna get anything in return. <laughs> And I, the sense that this hasn't led to some sort of uprising, I mean, it, it, it's generated a lot of anger. And the, I think the great disappointment is that anger has often been utilized by on the right, um, particularly you know, in the US, obviously, most obviously with Trump. But in general, I think across the global north, you've seen the rise of a, a legitimate anger with neoliberalism, but it has been utilized by politicians on the right more than it has, I think, effectively on the left. And, and I think that in some way um, symbolizes a, a kind of uh, a problem with the left, particularly in the neoliberal period. But, it, but that legitimate anger with neoliberalism exists, but it's being directed, rather than being directed at capitalism, it's being directed at, um, uh, you know, at, at, at so say immigrants or um, woke warriors or whatever you want, postmodernism even this idea that um, that I think the the right wing have have captured the political imagination post two thousand eight, and they've they've used the concept the, the futility that everyone experiences to to further their cause, um, rather than um, I think that anger could be more effectively directed at capitalism itself. So, Neil, why did the left embrace neoliberalism? Because that, again, didn't make sense to me. One of the arguments I heard yeah. at the time was that, well, the Democratic Party, and you know, they're not necessarily 
left, but the Democratic Party said that they had no choice, essentially, mm. but to embrace neoliberalism because of the power of corporate and private money in election campaigns. So did the, the, the Democratic Party, did the left have a choice when it came to embracing neoliberalism? Did not embracing neoliberalism mean the end of them politically? Yeah, I think I think the situation in the U.S. is unique precisely because um, of the role of corporate money in um, in in elections. I always think David Graeber always had a really nice point where he said um, when you looked at um, political corruption across the globe, um, you find that the U.S. was was always quite low down down the list. But then he realized that. That the U.S. was one of the only places in the world that actually legalized political corruption by um, by allowing corporate money to influence elections in the way that it does. So I think the U.S. is is a unique um, unique uh, case study in that regard. Um, but that doesn't explain why um, neoliberalism was prop, you know um, uh, promulgated by many left wing governments across the global north. So in the U.S. Um, with the new Democrats under Clinton in particular. Then we see it rise in the UK um, with um, Tony Blair and New Labour. Um, in my part of the world, in New Zealand, in the 1980s, it was the Labour government that that um, undertook the neoliberal revolution. And the same in Australia, it was a Labour government that did the same. So I think the idea that the left had no other choice, I think, is a very convenient truth for the left. Um, there were a series of, you know, economic situations in each of those countries that determined that that did suggest that something had to be done. Um, but I think the turn towards neoliberalism um, on the left was really, um, in many ways, the death of of, of the left of a, a progressive left. And we've seen that that left kind of reemerge in, in, you know, Sanders' um, campaign or uh, with Corbyn in the UK. Um, but I think the left embraced neoliberalism for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being, and I think the primary reason is basically from the legacy um, of the, the May 1968 um, uprisings um, in the sense that one of the, um, one of the key uh, arguments for that movement was that the state was repressive, that capitalism was repressive, that it stymied um, individual autonomy and individual freedom. And David Harvey makes the point that this this aspect of the May 1968 movement was something that the neoliberals could actually agree on, that for the, the May 1968 movement, they saw the state, the repressive state, as the problem, and so did the neoliberals for different reasons. And so what you see emerge in, uh, with neoliberalism is uh, particularly its left-wing variant, is, is a form of capitalism that um, allows for a certain version of individual autonomy. And we see this through the, the logic of personal responsibility, um, which was really fundamental to the Clinton project and really fundamental to the Blair project and then into Obama as well. So the idea is that um, we will give you as individuals greater autonomy over your own well-being but, but the return for that is that we will dismantle all the kind of social structures that can actually um, allow you to take greater responsibility for yourself. Um, and Nancy Fraser comes up with a really lovely term in her description of, of um, the, 
kind of how neoliberalism is embraced by the left, and she calls it progressive neoliberalism. And it's essentially that, um, I guess, one really simple way you could describe it is that the right brought in neoliberalism, uh, particularly, you know, under Reagan or Thatcher in the UK, but the left kind of made it cool on some level, that it was cool to be into, to be an individual. It was cool to have this sort of autonomy, um, this freedom to work whenever you want or um, to do whatever you like, to, to have the options to, to study whatever you like or, or learn whatever skill you like. Um, and But at the same time, the social state just simply retreated and retreated and retreated. And we've ended up, particularly post-2008 in this era, where lots of people um, are trying to to make themselves as, as useful as possible, but there's no avenue for that kind of individual um, development of, of, of utility maximization to, to find some sort of, um, to, to contribute towards a, a better world. It's simply all we can do is survive on an individual level. Well, let's talk about that survival for a moment. You write that increasingly use value is unrelated to our conscious attempts at utility maximization. For many corporations, we are at our most useful in our leisure time when we are shopping online, posting on social media, scrolling through the news on our phones, wearing Fitbits, or simply turning on Alexa as we wander around the house. When we do so, we generate information for a vast technological infrastructure that generates capital through sharing this information with other corporations and advertisers. So we are most useful when we are giving our value away without the expectation of being rewarded for, in this case, personal information. If we are told and taught to maximize our value, then why do we not guard that value and value it even more? Why do we not insist on being rewarded for accumulating information for others, or for that matter, using the self-checkout at a grocery store? Yeah, that's a really... um... A really good point, and I think again, this 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 stems to that fundamental entrapment that 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 many of us feel that we we have no other option than to to um to hand over the kind of energies and the, the utility that we maximize at an individual level because we have to in order to to find to to basically live on some level, even though many of us might know that this is not the way the world should function. This is not how I want to live, but but without some sort of, as you said, you know, why was there not an uprising? Without without some sort of uprising, the only option we have is to try and find some sort of individual survival within that system. Um, and I think increasingly under you know surveillance capitalism, under the the kind of rise of of um, these um, uh, technologies that capture our um, our acts of individual maximization in a way that we often we give over quite willingly and we think of social media and so on and so forth um but, but under the, the kind of system of surveillance capitalism we're even more trapped because capitalism knows so much about us it, it can adapt to how we we function in many ways and even i think the example of the self-checkout is really good um because um it, it is it's really symbolizes a kind of sense the, the futility of the of the checkout worker essentially the the that that the, as these technologies come in and on one level make our lives easier but the the that that technology itself the self checkout represents the death of someone's job of of someone's life 
And actually, when someone else's job or someone else's um, capacity to maximize their own utility is diminished, we are all diminished on, on some level because particularly exactly because this idea is that that if we all maximize utility, it'll lead to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. But as technologies replace workers, as um, as surveillance capitalism maps everything that we do on a, on a on a daily basis, it's clear that that the that it, as we embrace these these things that supposedly make our life easier, we are actually diminishing the well being of of us as a collective. Um, subject um oh, the well-being of them of most people so therefore we are all diminished on some level even if it if it feels like it makes our lives slightly easier on an individual level we are speaking with neil valley he is author of utilitarianism neoliberalism and the production of uselessness you can follow neil on twitter at neil v-a-l-l-e L-L-Y, you write, most of us do not understand, for example, how the financial system works, how data is collected, stored, and used, uh, or the microbiology of viruses, and therefore we do not know who or what exactly is responsible for financial crises, privacy breaches, or pandemics. It is much easier to blame immigrants, elites, or even postmodernism. Why do we not understand how the financial system works? Why isn't understanding the financial system a requirement of our mm. education, how far would knowledge of the financial system go toward democratizing, if you will, capitalism? That's a, I mean, that's a really good point. Um, uh, but I think, but also a kind of uh, the impossibility of that, because it seems to me, um, and you actually often hear this from um, people who work in the financial system, many of them don't really understand fully how the financial system works. Because if they did, we wouldn't end up in the kind of situations that we have found ourselves. Um, so I guess what what I was trying to point out there is that that the world that we we exist in now is so complex um, that uh, uh, that only um, so there might be a few people who understand how the financial system works. There might be there's obviously microbiologists who understand how viruses work, but these these uh, these things are so complex and yet they're having such an impact on our daily existence um, obviously financial crisis has a massive impact on our daily existence but right now we're seeing seeing that a virus can have such a massive impact on on how we actually live on a day to daily basis um but because it seems so difficult to really understand exactly how these things work exactly why these things have such an impact on our lives. It's much easier to attack a more tangible, a more simple um, solution to to the problem. Um, and this is why I think the right has managed to capture the, the sense of futility that all of us feel in a way that the left hasn't. The left actually seems as more committed to going down the kind of neoliberal route than the right, the right does. And I think... Um, the right has managed to channel that sense that we feel, that, that sense of, of not understanding how the world functions, of feeling useless in the face of the world, and direct it towards these really simple targets. Um, so with Trump, you obviously see kind of immigrants um, or, or even this kind of mythical elite. Um, um, and, and or, or even now with the rise of kind of 
you know, kind of anti-vax movement or or even conspiracy theory movements, QAnon, so on and so forth. It's easier to to attach this feeling um, that that the world is so complex that we are useless in the face of this complexity, and to find an easy answer to that, and to 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 attach your your sense of of futility to that object, and to to direct your anger towards that object. When the reality is that all our anger should be directed at the capitalist system, because it is that's the only system that actually generates the feelings that we have, and it's the it's the dismantling of the, that system that can only secure our collective well-being. But that's a much more difficult sell than simply saying, if we can get rid of all these immigrants, my life will be better, um, or or or. Um, you know, political um, rhetoric to that logic. And um, it's much easier to galvanize people around these simple mythical political um, and uh, political problems than it is to actually confront the complexity of what really what really drives the world that we live in today. There, in, not in your writing, but in uh, the ideas and concepts of neoliberalism as well as capitalism, there are a lot of contradictions. And you write Margaret Thatcher's infamous claim in the late 1980s that there is no such thing as society symbolized the political victory of the neoliberal reimagining of the social. So under neoliberalism, we're convinced as individuals that maximizing our utilization is the best way to accumulate wealth, which is what is best for collective well-being. Yet neoliberalism insists there is no society. How can individuals, individual acts be seen as what is best for collective well-being when those individuals also do not believe there is a society. Yeah. And that, that's, that really to me sums up for me, that is the moment where futilitarianism emerges as the kind of dominant ethical um, theory that governs capitalism, because it's that, that very moment, as soon as we, we, we agree, or we might not necessarily agree, but as soon as, um, political um the political will suggests that there is no such thing as society only individuals and their families as, as Thatcher said is at that very moment that that the 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 aspects of, of the generation of utility maximization can find no avenue to to express itself on a collective level and simply we all we end up doing therefore is maximize utility on the individual level because where can we um where can we actually aggregate that individual utility in a way that might make society function um in a way that 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 um generates the greatest happiness the greatest numbers utilitarian philosophers um argued so this is the great kind of paradox of, of neoliberalism is that that if we accept or which of course many of us won't. But if 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 there is no such thing as society, then what what are we doing as individuals that contributes towards the well-being of others? And I think what's really fundamental here is that 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 when when there is no such thing as society, the practice practice of maximizing utility, which as I said is central to economic theory. It no longer aims towards any kind of social good. So where does it go? And essentially, we 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 get trapped up in in a loop of, of self interest of of um self of of complete personal responsibility for our own well being because we we no longer see society as something that can actually 
make us feel um, secure as individuals. And a great, I guess, yeah, the great paradox of neoliberalism is that it demands a, a responsibility on the, on the um, part of, of every individual citizen, while at the same time completely dismantles the social structures that can allow individuals that can that can allow that um, individual act utility and maximization to provide some sense of security. And I think this is the kind of where we find ourselves now, and this is why futilitarianism is the kind of governing logic of our era, um, is precisely because society has been dismantled by, by neoliberalism, and therefore we're all on our own. We have no avenue to, to collectively um, uh, encompass all our individual acts of utility maximization. So is it a mistake then for us to focus on our own complicity when it comes to capitalism or neoliberalism or even climate change? Is that a distraction from what's really causing our crises of the day? Yeah, I I think so. Um, it's not that we shouldn't think about how we live um, within capitalism, but the idea that we, I think neoliberalism wants us to believe that it's, it's it's through our own individual actions that we can somehow transform the world. Um, I think that's a really dangerous place for us to exist on the left um, because it really negates um, any capacity to to collectively confront um, contemporary capitalism. Um, so when we are kind of individualized to such an extent, um, it feels to me that. It, any kind of resistance towards capitalism becomes almost impossible under under such conditions. And so, what what I as I kind of intimated earlier, what I'm trying to do with this idea of futility is to describe a, an experience that that ties many of us together, an experience that we can go, yes, I feel that, and so does so do you, and so do you, and so do you. And actually, by kind of generating an awareness that many of us share an experience of futility which is individually different and yet yet does bind us together in some way. We can see that actually, that if I try to confront my own utility simply on an individual level, th that, is not, that, that does not make society better. It might make my life better sometimes, it might make my life better or worse sometimes, but it's a completely um, futile task if, if, if we think that the aims of if we think that my if I think that my individual actions might might generate some sort of systemic change, then we basically were screwed. Um, and we see this play out in a lot of kind of what we might think of progressive causes. I, I name them in the book: um, certain forms of consumer activism, things like boycotting, which is um, a, a, it's a kind of micro political um, endeavor, but it's. Um, it replaces the idea of boycotting. So boycotting is essentially that instead of boycotting a product, you buy a product that is in competition with the product that, that you dislike. And what that allows us to do is feel ethical, but also consume at the same time. Or we think of climate change or, or climate politics as, as simply, you know, um, abstaining from, you know, eating meat or, um, or recycling or, um, living in a tiny house or so on and so forth. And it's not that these things shouldn't happen, but the, the idea of that, if that's only where those things stop, 
if they simply stop within the individual, if the individual thinks, well, I'm doing my part, then we're, we are totally screwed. Um, it's by actually seeing that many of us share the same experience. And it's, it's by using that experience to, to build a kind of collective movement that actually that's the only way that we can change the, the society in which we live. Um, and this is the real point that the, the, the book is really trying to provide the kind of the foundations for, for that, um, as I call it, the becoming common. Uh, it's the foundation for seeing that many of us share an experience and that shared experience can be the thing that we can use to, to see that our, our world is better if we, if we if we think of ourselves as a collective rather than as individual. Just a couple more questions for you. You quote historian Quinn Slobodian writing that neoliberalism emerged in the 1930s less as an economic project, project than as a project of politics and law. The search was on for models of governance at scales from the local to the global that would best encase and protect the world economy. So is protecting capitalism through politics and law, making neoliberalism bipartisan and reinforcing it by changing the law and the expansion of property rights over people's rights, is that the mission of neoliberalism from its beginning? Because again, Slobodian mm-hmm. points out that neoliberalism emerged in the, 19, in the 1930s. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. to what extent is neoliberalism a reaction to an outcome of the Red Scare? Yeah, I, I think that's really important point, and I think that's why uh, Quinn Sibodian's book is so um, um, so important for how we come to understand neoliberalism. Um, is precisely that, that that one of the kind of general myths about neoliberalism is that it it is against the state, that it that it entails the the receding of the state and the emergence simply of the market as the governing logic of how the the state operates. And that's really not true when you look at the kind of intellectual history of neoliberalism and the, the, the practical, the way that neoliberalism actually operates in, in practice. It's clear that the neoliberals see a really fundamental role for the state. It's just different than, say, the, the social um, social democratic states, which the social democratic states, particularly that emerges post the Second World War, is basically intervenes in the economy to protect the well-being, the welfare of as many people as possible. There's, you know, there are fundamental problems with that, um, particularly on levels of gender and, and sexuality and race. But but on a general level, that's that's the kind of role of the social democratic state. And the neoliberals hate that form of state. They hate a state that 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 basically um, protects the well-being of individuals because they see it as as restrictive on some level. But this does not mean that they want the state to disappear. And I think this is why Slobodian's work is so important. What they actually want is the state to intervene to protect the market from intervention. Um, so I, I, Clint Slobodian, um, I, he had a great, um, I think I remember someone asking him, how, um, how would you describe neoliberalism in, in one sentence? And he said that the continual protection of capitalism from democracy. And I think that really sums up essentially how neoliberalism operates is that it that the state intervenes to protect the market it doesn't just let the market run the state um which is a kind of liberal kind of constantly that's why neoliberal is different to liberalism is uh, and ludwig von mises who was the the um head of the what 
subordinate calls the Geneva School of neoliberalism. Um, he had a major impact on the subsequent neoliberal thinkers that developed in the 20th century. And he sees the state's role as, as he literally says, as beating people into submission so that they 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 follow the logic of the market. Um, but the state, the state's role is therefore to police that on some level, to intervene, to make individuals, to shape individual behaviors in a way that, that means that the, the market is protected from, from our kind of democratic um, instincts. And this really, I think, especially post-2008 is where we see neoliberalism, or the state continually intervening to, to, to entrench us deeper within the logic of the market. And that's really what austerity is trying to do. That's why Laval and Dardot call it a war against the population. It, it is, it's in the, in the language of Omesis, that post-2008 neoliberalism and its punitive turn is a form of beating people into submission. Even when it's when the mark when it's shown that the market does not work, neoliberalism becomes more aggressive and it makes us it makes us function within that market. And the state has a really fundamental role in doing that. Which, which, as you point out, has made neoliberalism even more aggressive and more parasitic, not only from 2008, but also during the COVID-19 pandemic. I got one last question for you, uh, Neil. We've been speaking with Neil Vallelie, author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. You can follow Neil on Twitter at Neil Vallely, that's V-A-L-L-E-L-L-Y. Thanks to listener Tom G, who suggested we have Neil on the show. Thank you, Tom. So one last question for you, Neil, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. I had a really great question from hell written up for you, and then you said something clever, and now i got to follow up on that. So one of the, <laughs> one of the foundations of neoliberalism, as you pointed out, is humans are selfish. Neil, are humans naturally and inherently selfish? And when we believe that they are, what happens the way we view humanity? Um, my, I, I know, as a kind of simple answer to that, I, I really don't think humans are fundamentally selfish. In fact, I think humans are fundamentally relational, that we are dependent on others, that we... Um, we know on that, that without others we, we can't exist as kind of individuals. I think that's the most fundamental aspect of humanity, and it's this it's this aspect of humanity that that capitalism tries to to extinguish at all avenues. Um, so I think so. Yeah. So so on one level, no, I don't think we are fundamentally selfish. But 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 by by portraying humans as selfish, this this has been really important for the development of economic science and um, to, to see as if every individual, um, every individual thinks rationally about their well-being and every single action that they make, and they make a kind of self-interested decision in every single thing that they do. This has become really important to, to, for economists um, particularly, but it's a, it's, a, it's a completely perverted way of thinking about how individuals exist in the world. Um, so no, we are not selfish. We are fundamentally relational. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has shown that, has shown that the well-being of others has an extremely, and in this context, detrimental effect on our um, well-being if, if the well-being of others is, is affected. And what the COVID-19 pandemic has shown, the kind of international um, 
international dimensions of that is that the well-being of people in one corner of the world can impact the well-being of people in the other corner of the world. And therefore, it's actually our shared relationality that is the basis of our humanity. It's not our selfishness. And I think this is, again, why I think neoliberalism acts to make us feel like we are individually, that we are selfish and that we must generate, that we must embrace that selfishness in order to, to look after ourselves. But what the world really tells us at every single juncture and increasingly um, in more uh, kind of emergencies is that actually we are fundamentally dependent on one another and we need to embrace that dependence, that interdependence, if we want to shape the future in a way that gives us some sense of of, of, of even individual and social well-being. Neil, this is absolutely fascinating work, and I'm starting to realize that I'm unfortunately part of the futilitariat, and I really appreciate you <laughs> revealing that to me. Neil, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Tom G. for suggesting we have you on the show. This is a fascinating book, and everybody should go check out your work, Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much, Chuck. I should point out that it's 5 a.m. here, so if I sound, if I started to repeat myself there, um, I'm sorry. Well, I want to tell you it's 11 a.m. here, and if I sounded completely <laughs> clueless, please forgive me. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell, if what you just heard from Neil on futilitarianism if that in some way enlightened you or made you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support. See all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. And we want to thank the tithing-like commitment of Brett B. and Magnificent Me to This Is Hell. Thanks, Brett and Magnificent. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, what is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? What is the best thing you ever found lying on the street? Oh. Pete V says, Uh-oh. your mom. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. She's battling an illness right now. Let, let her know. Look, she's drinking. Paolo S. says, a broken Advil board. <laughs> Badger N. says, me explain to the cop why I had a beer can in my car's cup holder. <laughs> what is the best thing you ever found? Just lying in the street. Kevin W. says, I volunteered in the Peace Corps in Mexico, and once I found a 500 peso coin in the street. 500 pesos at the time would be about US $50. I told that to my Mexican coworkers who at first gring, uh, grumbled, oh, those gringos have all the luck. And then I showed them that it was an old 500 peso coin from before the currency devaluation. So it's actually only worth about $5, which I knew when I found it. Still the best thing I ever found on the street. <laughs> Fabio L says, my inner monologue lies to me all the time. So I listen to podcasts while walking down the street to shut it up. <laughs> what is the best thing you ever found? Just lying in the street. Lisa B says most of my furniture, which is great. <laughs> and finally, I've been in her house. I think that's true. And finally, Danko says my next girlfriend. <laughs> we'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, this quite this week's question mail is what is the best thing you ever found? Lying on the street, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail gets whatever choice, uh, your choice of whatever this is how swag you want. 
You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to the question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. November 28, 1961, 60 years ago yesterday, Monday, at Cape Canaveral, Florida, NASA engineers stuffed a juvenile chimpanzee named Enos into a Mercury space capsule and launched him into orbit atop a converted Atlas ICBM. Makes sense. The tiny spacecraft had been designed to carry a human, and astronaut John Glenn was itching to ride it into orbit. But U.S. flight surgeons still had no idea whether a human could deal with high G-forces and hours of zero gravity without perhaps losing consciousness or going nuts, which means, let's try it on a monkey first. So Enos the chimp, I know, the chimp's not a monkey, was assigned to fly first since his life was viewed as being of less value. He had been subjected to months of rigorous training in which he had to respond to light signals on an electrical panel by throwing appropriate switches. If he responded correctly, the machine gave him a banana pellet. If he responded wrong, he got an electric shock, which was much like the training experienced by John Glenn, but instead of banana pellets, he got scotch. Or Earth, on Earth, Enos had gotten very good at this practice, and the space capsule was fitted with a similar apparatus so that scientists could see whether he could function as well in space. The launch went perfectly, but once Enos was in orbit, a short-circuit malfunction caused him to receive a shock even when he threw his switches correctly. But despite the shocks, he performed brilliantly and was brought back to Earth after only two orbits instead of the planned three, which is pretty impressive. Twelve weeks later, John Glenn rode a Mercury capsule into space and became world famous. Enos, meanwhile, developed a drug-resistant form of dysentery and was dead within a year. So how and where did Enos get dysentery? More importantly, was it space dysentery? And is space dysentery any different from Earth-bound dysentery? Because I've had Terran dysentery. And it's gross with, with all the pooping and stuff. In Rotten History, December 3rd, 1992, 29 years ago this Saturday, the Greek oil tanker Aegean Sea, apparently named for the Aegean Sea, carrying 79,000 metric tons of crude oil from Scotland to Spain, ran into heavy weather in the North Atlantic off the coast of Galicia amid severe winds and fog with extremely limited visibility. The ship was heading toward the port of A Coruña, when it was driven off course. The ship ran aground, and while all 32 crew members escaped safely from the wreck, the ship broke up, spilling most of its crude oil cargo onto the beach and into the sea, so the sailors escaped harm, but the environment did not. The ship then caught on fire, belching massive clouds of poisonous oil smoke that forced an emergency evacuation of the quarter-million inhabitants of A Coruña. Sailors escape, as does the oil, and it's poisonous smoke forcing nearby residents to escape as well. A lot of escaping going on. Meanwhile, in spite of extensive efforts to contain the spill, more than 200 miles of the adjacent Spanish coastline were inundated with crude oil. Do you ever notice that whenever there is an oil spill, news media reports extensive efforts were employed to contain the spill, yet it's never contained? It's almost as if we simply do not have an effective technology to contain oil spills, which is weird. 
Not only were sea animals and birds hard hit, but the disaster also had a devastating impact on the local economy, which depended on both fishing and tourism which were pretty much destroyed by the oil spill. The captain and pilot of the tanker were later found guilty of criminal negligence, but the locals were never adequately compensated for their losses because they never are. And oil exploitation, which contributes greatly to climate change, continues to be a very profitable business, partly because nobody's ever adequately comp- compensated for their losses. Ten years later, in November 2002, another oil tanker called the Prestige, horribly named, broke up and sank in the exact same area. And to this day, that shipwreck continues to leak crude oil into the sea, which means that for nearly the last 20 years, a crude oil tanker has been spilling oil in an area that was once dependent upon fishing and tourism. Who knows? Maybe the captain and pilot of the Prestige will be found guilty of criminal negligence someday, too. But one thing you can be certain of is that the highest paid executives and the shareholders who profit from oil the most will never be held accountable because that's rotten history and this is hell. Alex, who do we have scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? Uh, Real excited to have on CE. They're just going by CE to talk about her new inquiry piece, Farming in the Shadow of the shadow state. And did we get Magdi back on yeah, for Thursday? Yeah, Magdi's on Thursday. And tell people what Magdi. Uh, Magdi El Ghazuli will be on to talk about his Spectre Journal article, Counter Revolution in Sudan, a history of military coups and mass struggle. And you found and that. And a moment of truth. You didn't. Uh, that wasn't Jess. That was you who found that article, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I thought so. I was a little bit confused a couple weeks ago. So, as I was saying earlier, we are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess has and Richard and Alex continue to do, email me at chuck at this is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com if you'd like to join us here on this is hell we are looking for people who can run the board which is a very easy task uh, from once a week here at our studio above carrie's lounge 2251 west Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m mondays through thursdays however we are very flexible and if you can only do it a couple of times a month we can work within your schedule this is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well if you want to do your own podcast or just work on your own music and we actually pay our board ops a living wage so free access to a studio and a living wage if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on this is hell email me at chuck at this is hell.com of course with this position you need to live in the chicago area and we have an announcement to make the good news is board operator jess lipka has found full-time employment the bad news is it is not as a full-time producer here on this is hell which means Jess will no longer be joining us here on This Is Hell. I think he's going to be made do one more show this week. Like Egon Sheely, he has moved on to greener pastures, much greener. This means we need new board ops. And again, we do pay a living wage, and your time commitment can be as little as two hours a week. But we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that you can do no matter if you live in London or Laos. You too can be part of This Is Hell wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they can expect when they listen. So if you're listening to the show, all you would do is say, I really like that quote. You pause it, you rewind, you write down the quote, you'd send that to us job done. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here 
in our studio or are interested in contributing online, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And Mike writes us that he is interested in doing some remote work for This Is Hell. Mike writes, hey, Chuck, longtime listener of the show here. I recently heard about your call for people to potentially do some remote work for the show, and it piqued my interest as I no longer live in Chicago, in the Chicago area, but still regularly listen to the show. What exactly are you looking for? I have some decent research, writing, editing, etc. skills, and I'm also a competent translator, English and Spanish. If any of these skills could be useful or others, it'd be great. It'd be a great joy to work with the show. Thanks for teaching me so much over the years, Mike. Mike, you definitely have the skills we are seeking. Alex will be getting in touch, describing exactly the kind of work we need to get done. We also got something in the actual mail sent to us at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we have no idea who sent it or why, but that's not going to stop me from speculating. I mean, why not? That's all CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News do all day is speculate about what is happening or what could happen, like they're covering a sporting event, endlessly making guesses and predictions for which they have are never held accountable, especially if they're wrong. So the package we received, Alex, was from Ashrafan, Ashrafan in Arlington Heights, Illinois. We have no idea who Ashrafan is and do not remember seeing that name in any emails or regular mail we've received in the past. The package came with no message, no note, nothing except three items. And Alex, I will be glad to share any and all of these with you. One pound of natural sun-dried mulberries, which is a rich source of vitamin C, fiber, and antioxidants. A one-pound jar of white high mountain raw honey. And a one-pound bag of wild forest walnuts, which, according to the label on the bag, are harvested from the wild forest of Arslanbab. Any guesses as to where Arslanbab is? Alex? Can you hear me typing? <laughs> I'm guessing it's in a subject. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling it's like in a, the Jalalabad region of Kyrgyzstan. Right? No, look at that. Now, the only people we know in Kyrgyzstan are the good people who write where, Alex? A hypocrite reader. But I think uh, Erica is in the U.S. now. Does she live in the Chicago area? No. This is a weird mystery. Right? And so that's my guess as to who sent us this lovely gift of mulberries, walnuts, and honey. You can find out more about Hypocrite Reader at hypocritereader.com or follow them on Twitter at hypocriterdr. And if you do, thank them for supporting This Is Hell if they actually did support This Is Hell and sent us this very nice package. Finally today, over the final two weeks of this year, we will not be doing live daily shows, but we will continue to do a new Patreon podcast each week with a new monologue from me in a classic interview that you cannot currently find anywhere online. However, we will be playing stuff on those 10 days and i'm hoping that we can play your or our 10 favorite shows or interviews of 2021 send us your favorite interview or show you heard this year on this is hell to chuck at this is hell.com we'll then read your suggestions on air and if we play your favorite interview or episode we'll also thank you on air thanks to our guest today neil valley author of utilitarianism neoliberalism and the production of uselessness 
You can follow Neil on Twitter at Neil, V-A-L-L-E-L-L-Y. Thanks to Alex Jerry for running the board. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is, what the hell was it? Oh, yeah. Go to a carvery. Find out what it is. Then go to a carvery. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>